I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Mark Bubbs, naturopathic physician and performance consultant about his recent book, Peak 40, in which he provides evidence-based strategies to stay in shape or get in better shape in midlife. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration, aka the FDA, approved the drug aducanumab for treatment of Alzheimer's disease, and I'll call that AD. This is big news because there hasn't been a new drug approved for AD in over 20 years, and the few on the market now don't work very well. I tried to find an AD researcher or a physician to interview about the drug because its approval was really controversial. No luck, probably because it's such a new release and so many people want to ask questions about it. So I'm taking the following from a synopsis by physician Peter Atia, who's written extensively on AD. I'll link to his website in the show notes. Aducanumab is what's called a monoclonal antibody. That means it's a protein manufactured in a lab designed to recognize and inactivate one specific compound. In the case of AD, the compound is something called amyloid beta, which builds up in the brains of people with the disease. Treatment with aducanumab may slow the progression of memory and cognitive problems arising early in AD by decreasing amyloid beta in the brain. It's been nearly two decades since an AD drug was last approved, and what's more, a treatment like aducanumab with the potential for modifying the disease is not like the four currently approved drugs on the market. These four treat symptoms of the disease and not the disease itself. However, there is certainly controversy and considerable public debate around the new drug's approval. After the FDA approved the treatment, three FDA advisory panel members resigned. But controversial or not, the fact of the matter is that the drug is now in the arsenal of drug treatment for AD. Let's delve into what that drug's approval means for AD clinical care in the future. As of now, there are as many questions as answers involving real-world efficacy, safety, and use of the drug. As part of aducanumab's accelerated approval, the FDA requires its manufacturer, which uses the brand name Aduhelm, to complete a phase four confirmatory trial to verify the drug's clinical benefit. Additional information on the drug's safety and efficacy will also come from its use in clinical practice, which will shape its clinical use applications. Doctors will see patterns and eventually may be able to stratify the patient population receiving the drug by who best responds. If it's well tolerated, then its use can continue. This scenario is like what we saw with COVID-19 vaccines that went through phase three trials, demonstrated safety and efficacy, and then accumulated subsequent confirmatory safety and effectiveness data throughout the rollout. There is some ambiguity about just how to use aducanumab, which may sound surprising for a drug that has just been approved by the FDA. The clinical trial was very specific about its use treating patients in the mild cognitive impairment stage of AD who had amyloid beta. The drug was approved based on its ability to reduce amyloid in the brain, 
that's correlated with improving mild cognitive impairment, rather than based on a clinical measure such as delaying cognitive decline. In real-world treatment, however, the standard of care does not often include diagnostic methods to evaluate the presence or absence of amyloid beta in patients with AD. Rather, treatment guidance relies more on cognitive and daily functional assessments. It's hard to assess amyloid beta. You have to use a PET scan, and these are expensive. You can also use a spinal puncture or TAP to test for a marker associated with amyloid beta, but these are really painful. A blood test would be great, but these are just now being developed and are not in use yet. Another uncertainty about prescribing aducanumab is because the FDA did not specify who should get the drug. As I said earlier, the clinical trial was very specific about how the drug was to be used. And whether or not you've ever seen or read the fine print on an insert that comes with a prescribed medication, you know that it's like a playbook for giving the drug. It includes details and directions, such as what the drug is indicated for, possible side effects from taking it, dosage, and how to administer it. The opening line of the package insert of aducanumab says that it's indicated for treatment of Alzheimer's disease, period. Now, keep in mind that AD is a spectrum that ranges from stage one, preclinical or asymptomatic disease, through stage two, characterized by mild cognitive impairment or pre-dementia, to stage three, which is more advanced stages of mild, moderate, and severe dementia. Thus, the simple categorization on the insert of Alzheimer's disease may raise some confusion about what specific population of patients the drug is equipped to treat. The aducanumab package insert is like reading instructions that accompany a set of high-performance tires, which reads, intended for a sports car. Anyone who has bought a new set of tires knows that which tires to purchase depends on the type of car and how you want to drive. Just like it is up to the person who is in the market for a new set of wheels to figure out which tires are best for them, perhaps with the help of a competent salesperson, it's now up to physicians to figure out which patients are most well-suited for this drug. These questions around the safety and efficacy of the new drug exacerbate its cost, both financial and experiential. The drug costs over $50,000 a year. In addition, patients have to receive monthly infusions. This is different from taking a pill. Patients will have to make decisions about both their time expenditure and the invasiveness of the drug. Given the uncertainty about the safety and efficacy of its use, these are some major hurdles. I expect we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the next few years. When I get older, losing my head, many years from now, will you still be sending me a valentine, birthday greetings, bottle of wine, if I'd be out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Mark Bubbs from Florida. He was there consulting for the Canadian national basketball team's Olympic training camp. His new book, Peak 40, builds on the strategies he laid out in his first book on the science of athletic performance. I spoke with him a few years ago about that book. In the new book, Peak 40, the focus is on a realistic, health-based approach to training at all levels. In the process, you can become healthier and happier. I'm talking to Dr. Mark Bubbs today about his new book, Peak 40, 
And a few years ago, I interviewed Mark on this program for his earlier book about peak performance. So this is a very cool opportunity to follow up with an insight into how to keep reaching peak performance as we age, which many of my listeners know is a big interest of mine. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Mark. And let's start talking about how you open your book, which I thought was a great idea. You talk about this U-shaped curve in happiness, how we start off life pretty happy, and then we hit middle age and we kind of bottom out. And what it, you, you go into a lot of detail, but briefly, what's going on with our middle age slump? Well, thanks for having me on, Beth. I appreciate it. And it is an interesting thing. I mean, I'm actually right now at the training camp for Canada basketball as we get ready for the Olympics. And, you know, the genesis of writing Peak 40 was all around, you know, the coaches and performance staff. And of course, a lot of my clients as well, you know, in, in midlife, everything's, you know, we're busy, we're lacking sleep, the demands of work demands or stress demands are higher. And so it becomes this game of, you know, we don't have the bandwidth to be taking on lots of information with regards to how we eat or how we move. We don't have time to be weighing our foods or counting macros. And so how can we start to navigate some of this with some more sort of simple rules and heuristics? And I think, you know, as I was researching the book, one of the things that really hit me because mindset was going to be such a key part of trying to help people resolve this because it is, you know, whether it's performance for athletes or for the rest of us, it is such a key area. And, and yeah, in midlife, some of the work from Professor David Blanchflower you know, across 135 countries and all continents, and it didn't matter, socioeconomic status, we tend to see this, this dip um, in happiness levels in midlife. And, you know, that's not a sentence to be in uh, having a lower mood or whatnot, but it does then help to explain a lot of things when we're, you know, if we're, if we're lacking sleep already, it's difficult to disengage from negative thinking. And of course, if we combine that with, again, a bit of lower uh, mood from just the demands of life that it makes making some of these changes more more challenging and so that's really how we how the book uh, opens up and then from there we layer on yeah some strategies to help to, to resolve that yeah definitely more challenging but also so much more rewarding because not only can we gain in our um, physical health and performance but also our mental state happiness optimism and even longevity hundred percent. And that's where the book really circles back to towards the end is this idea of it's an opportunity. <clears throat> and one of the things is really around this idea of, of reflection and self-reflection. And if we're going to start building some of these habits, which we not only need now acutely to help get us through the busyness and the, you know, the, the madness of midlife, if you will, but also setting us up for longevity as we get to forties, fifties, sixties and beyond. And, and one of the areas that we look at is this idea of really pausing and, and, taking stock of our own values. And we all sort of have them trickling in the, in the background, but to really actually stop and think about this and, and flush it out and take some time is, is a really interesting exercise because when a client then is struggling to make a change, whether it's on the nutrition front or getting enough movement or, or going to bed on time, you know, getting enough sleep, and we start to see that those behaviors are actually in direct opposition to our values, which, which function you know, much like our North Star, it's amazing how it becomes easier to help clients make those changes. They already, they see the, the discord, you know, between what they're doing and where they want to get to. And so that you know, enables us to be able to start to make some of those small changes. And I think the interesting thing when working with athletes, working with the general population, you know, if we can just make those small changes and then repeat them over time is really the, the quote unquote secret rather than, you know, trying to identify some perfect dietary 
macro mix or, or exercise regime that's going to solve everything. Yeah, that's so true that um, as discovered by positive psychology several decades ago, that when you identify your values, then you can get the rest of your life in line through some fairly simple actions that you can identify based on those values. So then you go in, in your book and you spell out some of those, well, conceptually simple activities, but not necessarily <laughs> it's simple so but not easy, in, right? yeah. <laughs> in practice. Yeah. And um, of course, nutrition is a big one of those. So let's start with that. And I really like how you spell out some alternative strategies like to breakfast or not eat breakfast, you know, low carb, not low carb. So I think people are a little confused because there's so many options. So maybe we could touch briefly on a few of those. I love your discussion of breakfast, for instance, because I personally go back and forth about that. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating some of the new science around some of these things. And, and you know, breakfast is one of them. The, the bath breakfast project is a really interesting um, project at a bath university where you have some of the best scientists in the world examining this question around breakfast and as things like fasting have gained in popularity and there's certainly benefits to fasting and intermittent fasting but we do see some some knock-on effects which are um, potentially adverse for certain individuals and so one of those if you are more overweight or obese then you can actually have you know a more pronounced glucose response in the morning if you are fasting and you actually get what's called the second meal effect which is an exaggerated glucose response to your lunch in the afternoon and so for, for clients who are struggling, this might actually lead to more blood sugar highs and lows and therefore greater tendency to snack and things like that. You know, one of the other interesting findings was around movement and this idea that we actually start to move less if we do restrict feeding for extended periods of time. And the movement's really subtle. I mean, it can be not just the getting up and walking around the office or your house, but literally things like fidgeting and blinking, which over time, and it's hard to believe, but over time are statistically significant when we look at things like, you know, even weight loss. And so, you know, in the book, we try to spell out again, some of these simple rules of saying, well, if we can get you off to the right start for breakfast, if we can make sure that things don't go too far off the rails in the evening in terms of snacking and late snacking, and that's a whole other area that's, you know, the, the, again, the research around that we're consuming more than 40% of all of our calories after 6 PM, which unfortunately you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of our energy output, but it does when you consider how busy we are through the day. Um, but if we can do those things and, and then just hit our daily protein target, which again is something that when we talk about longevity is, is a really key part of this whole story. Oh, definitely. And a really useful um, attribute of your book is that you provide a lot of tables that give people really specific information. So instead of saying, you know, 0.5 grams of carb per kilogram per day or 1.5, you know, you spell out what are some sources of carbs, which is really useful, and then how much of each of those foods. And again, that's really useful so that you don't have to get out your calculator and get out your nutrition tables and say, oh, I want a piece of bread or I want some rice. How much can I have? Yeah. And when we talk about carbohydrates, it's sort of the next step when we get to carbohydrates and fats, but that idea of just appreciating that, yeah, some of them are more dense. And so when we, again, a simple rule, when we talk about rices and pastas, again, at the moment I'm working with athletes. And so we have a lot of rice and a lot of pasta because they're very, you know, for one cup, you're getting 40 plus grams of carbohydrate. Whereas, you know, the white potato, which unfortunately has been beaten up in the press over the last few years is still quite healthy for you. That only provides 20 grams of carbs per cup. 
So you're literally having the amount of carbohydrate and calorie caloric intake by just switching from one type of carbohydrate to another. And if we slide down the scale further, we get to things like carrots and beets, which are, you know, in the order of 10 or 12 grams per cup. And so the idea that we don't have to necessarily change the volume on our place to sort of swing this um, gradient of, of, of carbohydrate amount and thus caloric amount is an interesting one because, you know, again, for people, when we're busy, we just tend to think of weight loss as this exercise and shrinking everything that's on our plate. And whilst that can work, it's, it's a challenging one to, to be compliant with in the long term when you feel like you're being restricted all the time. Yeah. And before we leave carbs, I, I just wanted to mention that um, it could be fun for people to see some of the alternative carb sources in your book. Like many people probably never think about turnips or rutabagas, which, by the way, I never knew was also called a Swede. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting because yeah, once you learn a recipe or two or even just most things, baking them with some olive oil and some sea salt is a great way to um you know, to prep it. And it's amazing how you can have a big portion that not only, get, you know, gets you through today, but now you've got leftovers for tomorrow and the next day. And so that idea of prep um, really helps all of us, doesn't it? I mean, when we're busy and we're running from one place to the next, part of the reason why we do end up making, you know, this choice over that choice is because we, 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 we're not prepared and we just have to react to what's around us. Right. Absolutely. And those kinds of meals are really easy to fix when you just throw something in the oven with some olive oil on it. So let's oh, yeah. move on to protein, because I know that's another source of confusion for a lot of people, you know, animal protein versus non-animal, how much, a lot versus a little. So you definitely spend a lot of time in the book talking about this as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm sure people think, geez, we hear so much about protein and it's, you know, it's so important that you could almost argue we don't hear enough about it. And interestingly in the book, I mean, I, the target that I give people isn't a maximum amount. It's, it's, it's really what should be considered the minimum amount when we look at some of the great research from you know experts like uh, protein experts like Stu Phillips at McMaster University or or Dr. Theo Spoglu at Leeds Beckett in the UK you know in their research they're finding that you know 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight per day is a pretty darn nice target or low end what I in the book I call a minimum to shoot for because that's an, a number that as we go from 40 to 50 to 60 and 70 helps to protect us from from sarcopenia from loss of muscle mass and for many people that'll be accompanied by you know osteoporosis as well which is actually a, a growing problem uh, in in older populations and so this story of hey can we can we create the habit now that you just get used to having 1.2 grams as your minimum per day you know what it looks like you know what it feels like and now you don't really have to think about it anymore because ultimately you know, one of the themes of the book is this idea of how can we automate some of these things? Do we do we need to be thinking about each meal and how much and how little? You know, the more of these decisions that we can just build into our routines that then become part of the background operating system, you know, the better we're going to be able to 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 stay compliant and then free up more time for all the busyness and the other things that we have to do in the day, right? Right. And that's a really useful attribute of your book, which um, I will provide a link to both the book and show the the physical book itself on our website, because it's a little book, it's easy to read. Um, but you, like I said, with the carbs, you also provide a protein table that gives a lot of different protein sources. And for a target amount, you provide a quantity like a cup of this or a half a cup of this. So it's really easy to conceptualize how much should I eat at a given meal? Yeah, I mean, hopefully people can uh, 
can find that useful. And it definitely, you know, with peak 40, I think on audible, my first book was 13 hours or so of listening and, <laughs> and the follow-up, this is a shorter sort of user's guide uh, roadmap, if you will. And I think it's around four hours. So it's definitely, uh, yeah, you can get through a little quicker for sure. Yeah. I thought it was really useful. Um, you know, I just bookmarked many of the tables so that I could flip to them pretty easily and um, use that as a, a daily guide for, Oh, I need to get a little more protein today. What can I eat? Which is sometimes a really hard question for me. And then I like how you circle back in the book to the last couple chapters about um, other strategies like sleep and stress reduction. And as we touched on um, when we first started talking, one's mental outlook with respect to values, goals, et cetera. So um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about sleep because that's a really important thing that's really difficult for a lot of people too. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, as much as we still know about, as much as we know now about sleep with the boom over the last decade, decade and a half uh, around the effects of sleep on physical performance, mental performance, again, just as much as athletes know they should get more sleep in the general population, we know we should get more sleep. We, st- we still struggle to actually do it. And so that's, you know, Part of the messages in the book are some of these things people will have heard of, but it's more around, you know, we still need to to be able to apply some of this, and you know, that minimum of seven hours nightly isn't always easy to get when we're when we're running from here and there, and kids at home, or busyness at work, or all of the above. And so, you know, can we carve out time for some short naps of twenty minutes where you know we don't really fall asleep, but the eyes are closed, and we can, you know, upregulate some of that alpha brainwave activity to help us be. Um, focused and productive in the afternoon, or maybe it's on the weekend, some longer naps that can be helpful. And I think with the pandemic as well, but I think that's one where we've all experienced, you know, it's like Netflix and a glass of red wine at, yeah, at night. Yeah. And all of a sudden it becomes every night because we're all stuck at home and, and now you don't sleep quite as deeply. And for anyone who's worn a, you know, a, a whoop band or, or a ring or any device that measures your heart rate over the evening, you, you really start to notice that, Hey, one glass, actually your, your resting heart rate as you sleep might only go up eight beats but after you have two glasses definitely three your, your heart rate's going up by 20 or 25 beats um, per minute which is a you know a load on your nervous system and of course you wake up the next day and we're a bit more fatigued and we have to lean on some more caffeine and now we're you know we're on that sort of roller coaster up and down of looking for stimulants or sugars to, to get us through the day and so you know coming back to those fundamentals around sleep uh, is a really key part and you know i'm like the rest of Folks, I've got three, well, I got three little kids at home and, and a busy job. So, you know, these things will always get pulled sideways and it's it's having that awareness to say, okay, how do we get how do we get things back on track? Yeah, and I think a lot of people have the misguided notion that napping will take away from your nighttime sleep efficiency. And in fact, like you said, the research shows just the opposite. If you don't take too long of a nap too late in the day, it actually boosts um, your mental recovery and your brain health. Yeah. And I think it's a nice notion to think of it. We talk about this with athletes again, of this weekly total of sleep. So rather than having to depend on that nightly amount, because, you know, it is somewhat fixed for a lot of people or when you do get busy, if you start to think of the weekly amount, then all of a sudden those little naps that you had, you think, geez, I got an extra hour this week, or I might add two hours extra this week. And, and then you can you typically start to feel and see those benefits. 
Yeah, and all of that's so good. I mean, I keep coming back to that mental image of when you're sleeping, all those channels in your brain opening up and fleshing out all the crud that you don't get a chance to <laughs> yes. sweep out during the day. And so exactly. whenever I don't get a good night's sleep, I think, oh, no, it's building up. I have to get back to sleeping more. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. <laughs> so what is your take on stress reduction um, parameters for people that, like yourself, are really busy? Uh, obviously, you have a lot of stress. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that stress is bad. Some stress is really good for us. But how can you keep it to a manageable level? Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is, again, interesting, because when we look at sort of the elite sport realm in terms of Olympics and athletes, this idea of of mental, emotional stress being a big part of what we call training loads. So the, the amount of exercise someone's doing, well, if they have a high emotional, mental stress load, then that takes away from their ability to recover. And course for the rest of us in the general population that makes up such a big part of this whole recovery bucket and so you know sleep nutrition and this mental emotional stress piece are really the base of the pyramid if you will when we talk about recovery and so i think that idea of going back to some of those mindset skills to be able to help us dial down that mental emotional stress because it is how we're responding to things um, and, we, and we get stuck in different loops don't we in terms of how we respond and sometimes it could be more exaggerated than it needs to be and, and when i was looking at some of this research around just getting out into nature again particularly in the context of covid and, and how you know this notion of cultivating dispositional awe so if you're exposed to landscapes or, or forests or nature you know you have this positive emotional effect that happens and the really interesting part becomes we don't have to if you're not able to get to those areas even your local park or viewing images on on even instagram let's say of travel or listening to a certain song can could put our brains in a space where we can start to, to have that sort of impact and i think that allows us a level of decompression and i think a lot of people a lot of clients of mine and athletes have experienced that with the lockdown of just getting out to the park or getting outside um you know, for 15 or 20 minutes and being able to disconnect from some of the technology. And it's amazing how that can act as a, again, a release valve, if you will, to be able to start that decompression. So, so for me, that aspect and building some of those mindset skills of whether it's, you know, the optimism, the self-talk, these little things that don't need to take, you know, a half an hour, an hour, we could start doing small amounts every day, you know, while we're getting it, while we're in the shower or getting our coffee ready, that can really help to reframe you know, our outlook and how we see things, because ultimately that's the driver. So it's, it's, it's everything, isn't it? It's how our, our, our mindset and what we bring, that energy we bring every day when we get up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important point that we can finish on that you don't have to spend hours and hours doing all of these things every day. You can spend small little quanta of time doing them. And like you said, with the sleep, they'll build up over the course of the week. Absolutely. And I think that idea of even, you know, when you're in the shower, like one nice deep breath, you know, one positive thought for the day or one thing you're grateful for. And it's amazing how if you start to do that regularly, and it sounds so small. And so, you know, by the end of a week, it really does start to shift your, your outlook to kick off the day. And, and all of a sudden, you, that resiliency is a little stronger to tackle that long to do list that many of us have through the day. And, and you can really start to build on that. It becomes a, I like that idea that mindset skills are trainable when sometimes we think that these things are are, uh, you know, locked in. Absolutely. And the only way for most of us to train those things is by small steps, starting small, and then gradually we build up new habits. Absolutely. 
yeah, that was that I, we're out of time, Mark. <laughs> and um, I just want to say thank you for talking. Um, like I said, I will link to your book and good luck with the book and your week in Florida. Appreciate it. Yeah, always, always nice to be on and uh, you guys as well. I hopefully we'll be back to normal, normal living sometime soon. That was Dr. Mark Bubbs talking to me about his new book, Peak 40, an easy to follow guide for improving health and fitness in middle age and beyond based on new scientific research in nutrition, physiology, and psychology. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.